This is very, it's a special episode. It's also a sad episode. This is baseball and barbecue. And I am joined by my co-host, Jeff Cohen. And we're also joined by uh, someone who we call him Pine Tar. If he wants to give his regular name or the name that the, you know, he's known to the outside world as, <laughs> he's more than happy to do that. But it is unfortunate that we have to do this episode. This week, we lost someone very special uh, to, to the baseball world, to Pine Tar, to many people. Uh, Marjorie Adams, great-granddaughter of Doc Adams, who we were extremely fortunate to have on this show. This is a memoriam episode, um, but I don't want to sound so sad. I have a funny feeling that she would have wanted us to be happy to celebrate her life. Jeff, Pine Tar, I don't want to do all the talking. We've never done an episode like this. I don't even know how we do this episode. We're just going to play it by ear. You guys... Stop me from talking. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I just want to say that, you know, we only had that one one interview with, with Marjorie, but she really, uh, she was so great talking to us. And I felt a special kinship with her, just, just knowing her for that brief time that I did. I mean, very brief time. And it was very sad to see that she passed away on July 7th. And uh, we have with us Pine Tar, who knew her much better than we would ever do. And we'd like him to talk about his relationship with her and how uh, her efforts to get her great-grandfather into the Hall of Fame. So, Pintar, thank you for uh, joining us. And if you can please tell us your your relationship with, with, with Marjorie, that'd be great. Thank you. I will fill it in, guys. And uh, thank you very much. It was something. But uh, Marjorie Adams, I knew her as cranky. Sometimes she was a little cranky. And uh, fans back in the day were called cranks. It was a fitting name and fantastic. And, uh, you know, my name is Jeff Cornhouse, but she knew me as Pintar. It was a pleasure um, seeing her often and talking to her often. And, uh, you know, her calling me Pintar, calling her cranky. The thing I want to kind of say is that uh, here was an elderly woman when we met, uh, older, and um, she had a fantastic life from everything I could see. And had interesting uh, backstory and everything, but then she came in and, you know, started up in this baseball thing. And uh, there's a story with that, but kind of before that, I'll tell you, it was a sad day to kind of bring up why we're, we're having this, this talk and this meeting tonight, just last Wednesday, uh, seven, seven, she had passed away about five in the morning. I didn't know that I was on route to try to see her Chicarello and Jeffrey Barth, the two other baseball friends, and I think some others had seen her at the hospice house, hospital. They had a chance to speak to her as she was struggling in her final hours, and I was trying to get up there. I had missed. But I did go down there in a full 19th century baseball uniform, and it was my Liberty uniform. When I got there, a bunch of the nurses were saying, what's that about? I said, well, I just thought if Marjorie Adams Cranky could just peek through or crack her eyelid open and see me in this uniform might have woke her up a little bit because it is quite a bright uniform. And we talked about that a lot. So that was kind of the just recent, but you know, besides that, I kind of like to fill in because as yes, I play baseball. I've been doing this a long time. A lot of my friends play baseball. We get out there with the 19th century experience 
with the rules, regulations, and customs of the day, and we have at it. We play hard, and we play a lot. And Marjorie never played. She couldn't throw a ball. But let me tell you, honestly, she was so important to this game and all of us. It was amazing how we came together. I mean, so many of my great baseball friends, just there, they got a connection with her. It's, we all connected with her. She was really unique. And I say that because, you know, hey, she was a different generation and there was a lot of things. And it was kind of something that was kind of curious. But she really did. She touched a lot. She was just herself. She was just a baseball fan, and that probably was such a common core and connection with us. So with that being said, I'd like to kind of fill in a little bit what I know about Marjorie coming forward. You know, we got her on her own words and play that uh, interview a little bit later. But as I knew when she was growing up in her family, she had heard that her great-grandfather was the baseball guy. I, I, and and uh, excuse me, Marjorie, if I don't say things absolutely perfectly and try to remember, but, you know, she, she understands that. They would talk about this guy that was the baseball guy. He was involved in baseball and she knew it, but she really didn't know about it. And that's what she told to us. And even right down, there was many, many little things that she would, she would tell. But she didn't know the depth of it, but I guess the story goes that her nephew, Nate, if I could get this correct, and uh, if not, I, I could paint with a very broad brush here and people could check this out and, and get the, the truth of it. He had written a letter to the New York Times newspaper about Doc Adams. Somehow it was put in the newspaper and it generated interest. And I think that from the story I remember, that started to generate some talk. So this this guy, uh, I believe his name was, um, had done this. This was back in the 80s or something like that. So it hit the newspaper, kind of forgotten about. And then after that, that was okay, kind of came and went. And she had met some other guy who said, uh, you know, Doc Adams you know, saved baseball. And she was kind of, uh, and was a, a founding member. She was like, what? He was my baseball guy. Like at that point, she didn't know the depth of who he was. So somebody else had come across her and gave her this bit of information. And she was thinking, what? That's pretty interesting. Now, fast forward, I don't know all the details, but when I met her, I was a part of a program. We were putting baseball together in Colt Park, Hartford, Connecticut, right on Sam Colt's backyard between his house and his factory where they made the guns, the Colt 45 and all those guns. And uh, we had a great field. We had a, a guy named there, Gary O'Maxfield, that was also very much into history. And I believe through a common friend, uh, Grit Moran, Chris Moran had met her. He was on a train, something very unique, very interesting. And, and Chris Moran was also the guy that got me into vintage baseball. But through connections, we got her out to the field and we actually celebrated Doc Adams at that point and gave her a plaque. Not much more than that, just recognizing that. Well, she had started to come into it, and maybe before that she had heard a little bit of baseball and started to gather like a snowball rolling downhill. And at that point, we'd given her this very nice um, uh, framed thing that I believe we called that Doc Adams was called the Nestor of baseball, the Nestor of baseball, which goes back to you know, ancient times. Nate, uh, the Nestor was uh, an advisor 
and to help to really secure that. So that was kind of a great ceremony we had. At that point, she was starting to really dig her teeth into the baseball experience, and she started to devour a lot of information. And Roger Ratzenberg is a great friend of hers who done, he, he was just so instrumental on bringing her the helps she needed. I mean, she really did a lot of this herself, guys, and she became so qualified. She studied this guy, this era, this bit of information, and she knew it, and she was fantastic, and we all know that. But she also had some good people helping her along the way, and Roger was definitely one of them. And uh, he gave me the account that how in the early days he was watching her just ravenously uh, devour all this information and try to bring it bring it around. And he helped her build with the PowerPoints and with the computer and the websites. But, you know, early on, they were just friends. He met her just like me a year after me, and she was just on the field. And he was just a guy that took to her like we all did and started to just really take a fascination and a good friendship. And then she was reading stuff and he said, I'll help you with that. And all of a sudden it became what it was. And what it became was in the end, Marjorie Cranky, she had relationships with all the major baseball people, historians around the country, connections to the Hall of Fame. And she promoted Doc Adams wonderfully. And she never stretched a story. She was very straight up, making sure that all the facts were, 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 were laid out and just in a way that we all appreciated. So that's kind of a little bit how it started to work, but there's a lot of great people that are connected to her. A guy named Corky out of Minnesota who hand makes baseballs. She ordered one of his handmade baseball ornaments for the Christmas tree and gave it to me one year for Christmas. And I think she did that for a few people. Every Christmas, I hang a 19th century baseball on my Christmas tree from Cranky Adams, which is fantastic. You know, as you go through with that, I got to share with the way that she would just, every time you connected with her, there was something of a great connection. And and it's, it's odd. Let's be honest. We're a lot of men um, through the 40s or 50s, maybe. And she was in her ladies, later 70s uh, woman. Um, what was the real connection? But there seemed to be a great connection anyhow. And even we were playing baseball up in Woodstock, Connecticut. And there's a Roseland Cottage across the street. And all of a sudden, she starts to tell me how there was a, a sixth degree of separation with the owner or the man who built that Roseland Cottage and Doc Adams. And I am so ashamed that I don't remember all the tight details. I believe it was something that the guy was a tax collector down in New York, but he uh, actually had a connection with a preacher down in New York that was friends with Doc. And so it seemed like the owner of that house and Doc probably had met or had a, a relationship. Just something that crazy. Yes. Pintar, the, the, one of the things that we'll talk about in the interview, which, as you said, it, it is going to uh, be coming up, is the fact I am always amazed by this. I can't help it. It's Doc Adams was born in 1814. Now, Jeff, you're the math guy, but is that 207 years ago? 
<laughs> He's putting me on the spot. Yeah. Let me get my calculator out. But yeah, it's over like 18, <laughs> okay. 14 years, over 200 years. Yeah. And she's the great granddaughter. And I know it was said in the interview, but wow. Yeah, you know, you when you hear that he he was one of the inventors of baseball, a game that you think has been around forever, and yet she's only the great granddaughter of of him. It, I just am floored by that. That is amazing when you start to think about that. And um, even Roger Ratzenberg had said this, and I try to say, I go, listen, she is the great granddaughter of the most influential man to develop baseball. Right. I could put it that way because I would try to be as correct as I could. Not the great, 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 great granddaughter or not the great, great, great. Or, you know, you just think that's what it should be. Baseball has been around a long time. She has to have been, you know, she's really old or something. <laughs> but no, she was just the great granddaughter of the most influential man to develop baseball. Now, going forward with this uh, uh, kind of difficulty the Hall of Fame is going to have. I mean, there's some guy in the Hall of Fame right now that has a plaque that says that uh, he set the base pass at 90 feet. He didn't. Doc Adams did. And many other things. So there's going to be quite the curiosity thing when this all comes through. But he was so instrumental with that. And he, and he did. The, the biggest thing and why this worked out the way it was, does Doc Adams had kids later in life. He met a younger woman, but he waited a long time until he got married. And then the youngest of Doc Adams' children was Marjorie's grandfather. And Marjorie's grandfather then had kids. And the youngest of them was Marjorie's father. And that's how it happened. And she has a sister, um, Nancy, and I think some other siblings. But So that kind of stretched it out. By having later in life kids, it kind of gave a little stretch out to that time period. Yes, and if you want to learn more about Marjorie Adams, I mean, there, there's a website, docadamsbaseball.org. There's a page in, memori- in memory of Marjorie Adams. I urge everyone to take a, take a look at that. She was also, uh, you, you said, mentioned influential people in baseball, and one of the most influential people today in baseball is the official historian, John Thorne, who she got to know as well, correct? Yes, she was very close with John Thorne, and they talked many times. Also, another great friend of Doc Adams and Marjorie Adams is a guy named Colin Miller, who's also very close with John Thorne. And so it's this weaving that all of us baseball appreciative people are, are connecting with. And Colin Miller actually had started a movement with uh, Marjorie Adams to actually set a historical sign up in New Hampshire in the birthplace of Doc Adams. And it was there. They had the uh, uh, invitational game at the birthplace of Doc Adams. And, you know, certainly John Thorne, the historian from the Hall of Fame and a great guy himself, had uh, talked with uh, uh, Colin and Marjorie Adams. And he's been in on these preparations and decisions and uh, and stuff like that. So, um, again, there's there's just all of these little connections throughout the country, throughout baseball. And and we can't do it justice. I'm trying to properly name names that have. Uh, added to Marjorie's life, um, so to give proper recognition, but there's too many to, to to keep it together. There's just so many. You know, Pintar, when we um, when we had Marjorie on, first of all, we one of our one of our favorite interviews. I, I just she was, as they say, a spitfire. 
And the fact that she was sick and we didn't know it when, when she did the interview, I mean, she was just so full of life and just, just a wonderful person. And she just, the way she talked, she talked to you like, I, when I say you, I mean us, because you, she knew, but she talked to us like she knew us for years. And it was like, it was like she was our friend immediately. We were really looking forward to meeting her at Beth Page, old Beth Page for the, uh, the baseball tournament, the old baseball tournament, what you want to Yes, which which has been renamed the Doc Adams Invitational in support of all these efforts. And a guy named Tom Big Bet Felciano is down there pushing that on. And that's going to continue. By the way, one thing is she was very real. And to back up what you just said there, uh, Len, she was just real. And that's how she connected with people. You just you just knew you're getting honesty and a straightforward. And sometimes you got to got to comment you weren't ready for. But uh, she was she was open and real. But um, one thing that Jeff was saying before about the Facebook page, I just want people to know, is that Roger Ratzenberg had been the one to really help set that up and work with her. She she was the director. She was the historian. But, you know, like I said, that he had helped her out and he is going to continue to support uh, that Facebook page and some of these efforts we are all in this together to support the proper placement of Doc Adams in the Hall of Fame. We love it. We love the baseball game. We love history. So this is definitely going to go on like that. And um, uh, we're definitely going to support that. And Roger's going to keep that up. So there's going to be some current um, things going on just to let people know that you could go on and keep clicking on, even though Marjorie has passed, the the work she started is not going to have her power behind it like it had but there is still going to be a progression and there's going to be information. And when things progress and Doc does get voted in the Hall of Fame, it'll be announced there and everywhere. And anyhow, we're going to keep up that spirit and that strength. And we're really excited about that. That's, that's good. And, and the effort to get her great grandfather into the Hall of Fame will continue. Yeah, it's going to continue. But I believe it's when we say continue, yes, because we're not stopping. But I really believe this. I mean, she did all of the work she did so much by making connections with john thorne and other saber members she was giving speeches to saber members you know the 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 society for baseball and then she even um had under under her tutelage she got corky uh the guy who hand makes the baseballs to start to present the doc adams powerpoint presentation and roger had worked on developing that with her so she had already groomed people. She had her uh, disciples um, under her and all of us that were, were going to talk it up. But she had such a power with it. And the ball started rolling. And she had so many people understanding what was never understood. But guys, after this is all said and done, here's the bottom line. Doc Adams missed the Hall of Fame vote the last time by just a couple of votes and just Three months later, they came out and found the Dead Sea, I mean, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Was, <laughs> they found the laws of baseball. Now, the laws of baseball was the handwritten notes about baseball and the early laws from 1857 that Doc hand wrote himself on that funny kind of paper in grammar school when you got the, the, the dotted line in the middle. So it, it taught you how to 
do your capitals in little letters. Ah, uh, yes, cursive writing. Yes. That's the papers on, and uh, it sold for uh, what uh, was it, three point two six million dollars. Mm-hmm. But when they had done it, if they had just come out three months earlier, he's in. He's in the Hall of Fame. He can't miss because of the laws of baseball. He invented the shortstop position. Mm-hmm. That he is created the shortstop mm-hmm. position. And this is what Margie would say, I think, from the writing. He said the ball was light. So in the early days, you could bat the ball farther, but then they weren't throwing it as far. So, you know, relay, we, we do relay today in baseball, really. But back then, they were trying to look at it and say, well, the guy would bat it far, and the guy couldn't throw it back in the infield. So Doc said, hey, let's create this position called the rover. And it wasn't exactly where it is today, but it started where he would just go and be the middleman between the outfield and infield and just move around, depending on the batter. And when the ball went out to the outfield, he'd get out there and try to relay it in and throw it for the extra throw. Marjorie said because the ball was light, it was hard to throw. I think that was probably part of what they're saying. But I also think that the man's arm wasn't developed. I don't think they were out there playing baseball as much with the times life had. But remember, they were batting was easier for man. A lot of guys chopping trees. You could you had that swing down a lot better than just throwing a ball. But whatever it was, the uh, the shortstop position was necessity to uh, to do that relay from the outfield to infield, and then it started to solidify and stabilize and settle in right where it is today but he did start it he's the first person to play it that's a tremendous thing but you know really some of the better things that uh, he really did for the game creating that position was great it's such a very important position but you know he did set the base pass at 90 feet now he was big with math and i think his father was writing math books and oh my god marjorie told me so many things like him and his father would write things and his father was also very curious and his father was an abolitionist and his father was trying to do better in the world. He was a physician and, you know, he pushed for Doc to be a doctor, <laughs> you know, Daniel Lucius uh, uh, Adams to be a doctor. That's how we call him Doc today. Marjorie claims that I don't think he really loved being a doctor, but he kind of probably felt it pressure from his dad. But anyhow, they had written books and math books and uh, he was a brilliant guy. And he, you know, before that, it was about uh, so many paces, but every man was different. So every pace was different. But he standardized the base pass at 90 feet in the early days. And think about that to this day, guys, 90 feet, as they say, is perfection. Because this, this day, you know, if, if he had made it 89 feet or 91 feet, it would have given a bigger advantage to the runner or the catcher, the defense, or, you know, or they would have been a little bit different. But even to this day, you've got Ricky, you know, Ricky Henderson. Back then, you didn't have Ricky Henderson, but you had the fastest guy against the best thrower. But even all the way up till today, it's still a bang-bang play many times. It still works. And that's kind of amazing. It's really been a perfection. And then setting the game at nine innings, advent for the fly game, not just letting the ball bounce. He he kind of saw the progression and he looked for the better skill sets of the game, but he hand made the baseballs in the early days. Now guys think about it. There was no Walmart and there was mm-hmm. balding. So to play the game of baseball, we're going to get the balls. Somebody had to do this. 
And, you know, really, was there a lot of glory in it? Was there any money in it? But Doc loved the game so much that he early on went to a shoemaker who helped to teach him how to make the ball. And he was hand making them. So when they were playing in the Elijah Fields in Hoboken, New Jersey, sometimes that ball would get hit in the river. He'd smile. He'd get to sell another ball, make another ball. But he had to hand make them. There was no store to buy them. He also supervised the baseball bats being made in the early days. So if you realize it more than that, I think the gentleman, and I don't remember his name, unfortunately, but I think it was told in one of the interviews, Marjorie doing an interview with a big bat at Old Beth Page, the guy's name, he said, you know, Doc Adams saved baseball. He saved baseball in a couple of ways, literally. He, by the use of all his rhetoric and all of his um, encouragement, he would get guys out to the game and the field, and sometimes he felt it fruitless because nobody was showing up. And sometimes he wanted to give up, but for the love of the game, he persevered on. And um, early on, that, that, was a, that was a tough thing. But what were they doing early on? He had to get the equipment. Nobody else was doing that. Doc was doing that. Doc was hand-making the balls without it. Doc was supervising the bats. Who was doing that? You know, I mean, I'll jokingly say Cartwright seems to take a lot of uh, a lot of glory in the early days. And, you know, he was certainly there. But I do believe that Doc had a bigger part. But, you know, I don't think he was doing all of those things. That's just money for collection. Well, we're going to play the interview with Marjorie Adams. And I want everybody to li- just listen to her passion as she talks about her great-grandfather, because this, this woman just was so amazingly, she was so passionate about, about him. And you, you're going to hear that as, as you listen to this. So enjoy this interview, and we'll be back after, afterwards. With a podcast which has half its content dedicated to baseball, is there any doubt as to how much we love the game and its illustrious history? That's why we are extremely honored to have as a guest, a direct descendant of one of baseball's founding fathers, Dr. Daniel Lucius Adams, or Doc Adams, as he is known today, was a true pioneer. And thanks to his creativity and extreme efforts, we are able to enjoy a wonderful game, which in our hearts will always be known as America's pastime. We are being joined by Marjorie Adams, who is the great-granddaughter of Doc Adams. And since we cannot thank Doc, we want to express our deepest gratitude to her for the wonderful contributions of her great-grandfather and hope we can aid in her quest to have him enshrined in the Baseball Hall of Fame, which is where he most certainly deserves to be. Lovers of the history of this game, you are in for a wonderful treat as we welcome Marjorie Adams to baseball and barbecue. Welcome, Marjorie, to the show. Thank you, Len. That's a beautiful introduction. I am honored, and on behalf of Doc, I thank you for all those nice words. We are honored as well. It's like baseball royalty. Oh, my heavens. (laughs) Oh, my heavens. Where's my crown? (laughs) You should get a crown, and not only because... We see the people because we're doing this by Zoom, but we also have on someone that we can't thank enough. We had the opportunity to meet, and there's some people you just you meet them once 
and they become like, I don't know, we're, we're like now kindred spirits. Pine tar. Hey. Thank you. My buddy. Pine tar, we appreciate you getting Marjorie with us. We're, we're so excited for this. So let's jump right in. Let's talk about, so let's talk about Marjorie Adams. So we're going to talk about Doc Adams and Marjorie and everything No, we're else. not going to talk about me. That will put everybody to sleep. <laughs> Jeff, go right ahead. I, I think Pintar wanted to say something first. Not much. I'm going to try to stay out of the way a lot and interject when I can because uh, we will talk a little bit about Marjorie Adams because she deserves a lot of great credit what she's doing. But we are here for Doc, and she is pro propelling Doc promoting Doc, uplifting Doc in so many great ways. It's just with the history and just just a great spirit and energy and effort. And that's what Marjorie has really brought. I met her years ago when we when she first kind of got into this. She was kind of new. And I've seen her just take on an energy. I mean, she, she's in her golden year. She's fighting as much now as she ever has. And she's really been a tremendous baseball gift. And she's been my great friend. We've been having just fantastic times on the field, but we've we've woven um, the Doc Adams experience into this because of Marjorie, and it's made my baseball more meaningful. And all of Connecticut and throughout the Northeast, we play with more of a purpose when we've understood Doc, the true foundation of the game. Of course, there were ge different gentlemen, but Doc was so instrumental, and I dare say the most influential man to develop the game it wasn't invented, but it was developed under his tutelage. And then especially his early encouragement to keep it going, it shouldn't be uh, lost. It could have just died on the vine if it wasn't for Doc's early uh, encouragement to keep things going. Isn't that right, Marjorie? Well, yes, I agree completely. Thank you. Completely. <laughs> Marjorie, could you tell us what it's like growing up to be the great-granddaughter of this baseball forefather? Well, I didn't grow up that way. I, I grew up kn knowing about Doc, but nobody in my family ever, ever put the crown on him that others have. Oh, good heavens, no. He was my great-grandfather. We knew he'd been a doctor. We knew he'd invented the shortstop position. And that's pretty much all we knew. And the Knickerbocker Baseball Club. That's pretty much all we knew or all that was revealed to me. I mean, this was not daily conversation in the family. So I grew up knowing a little bit about him, but I have learned a thousand times more through family archives that I dug into when all this started and other people like John Thorne and his wonderful books and Peter Morris and Bill Reisick and all sorts of people who've written some wonderful books and have done some terrific research. So I've learned a great deal more from outside sources than I ever did from anyone in the family. It was not daily conversation. I want to make that clear. Yeah, so it, that's the thing. It's, we're finding out so much more now about the history of baseball. When I was a kid growing up, of course, if, I, if somebody said who invented baseball, the obvious answer back then would have been Abner Doubleday, which is... Oh, excuse okay. me, excuse me. Okay. <laughs> but we know now that that was wrong, okay? There's many things in history that have been embellished that we know is wrong, okay? We know Washington didn't chop down the cherry tree, okay? Or if he did, he certainly didn't, you know, 
tell anyone or whatever. Yeah. Okay. There are all these just things. the way so, Doubleday never told anybody. Right. <laughs> but so what is it about? So so let's talk about Doc Adams. Okay. We find out that Doc Adams started back in in the 1830s. I did some digging. Right. I listened to some interviews. He wrote a letter to his sister, and in that letter, he first mentioned. Um, his the bat and the ball, right? Which, Actually, which, it's the reverse. Okay. It was in 1832. Doc was at Yale, and his sister, who was then age 11, wrote him, and all the little news about the family and her school and all that. But there's a tantalizing line in there, in which she says, "I have not played with your bat and ball as you bid me. I forget it every morning." And indeed, I have not seen it since you went away. So obviously, he'd been home and he'd left her a bat and a ball. Now, we don't know what sort of bat or ball it was. It could have been cricket. It could have been wicket. It could have been town ball. It could have been just a stick with a ball. I mean, we don't know. But it is certainly proof of his interest in a bat and a ball type of game six years before Doubleday invented it in, in Cooperstown. <laughs> Let's get one thing clear. Doc was not a nickname. He was actually a medical doctor, correct? He was a doctor. He, he graduated from Yale in 1835, and then he went on to Harvard Medical School and graduated from there in 1838. He moved to New York City the following year, and he became a doctor. He was appointed a vaccine physician, for the city of New York and earned $400 a year. And he also volunteered his time with the New York Infirmary, which treated the poor. He was an attending physician there as a volunteer. And he was very involved with public health issues and was often called upon to help during the various cholera epidemics that ravaged the cities almost every summer. Mm -hmm. So yes, he was a practicing physician. That's terrific. And obviously an essential worker, as we like to say today. So how did he get involved with, with baseball? Well, the 1832 letter, while he was in college, it's obvious that he had an interest in sports. In fact, he did an interview with Sporting News in 1890, 1896, in which he says, and I quote, I became interested in athletics at college. So it was probably at Yale that he became interested in in athletics. The family has about 150 letters written to Doc by his father. Only one letter from Doc to his father exists. It doesn't mention baseball. No one should get excited. But so we have this great stock of letters, none of which mention sports of any kind. And I suspect Doc never mentioned it to his father because his father wouldn't have approved. His father wasn't the least bit interested in sports. His father's only interest was education. That's all his father cared about, that and God, that and attending to his soul. Those were the only two things that mat mattered to his father. Now, back when uh, baseball was just beginning, it was meant just to be a game. It, it was meant to be a way to exercise, really. It was a gentleman's game, right? There was no, there was no cursing. They got fined if they swore. But it wasn't, it, there was, they basically played games among themselves. There were no other teams that they were playing against, right? Well, beginning. yes and no. 
and new research is coming out all the time. When Doc first moved to New York, he joined the New York Baseball Club in about 1839, 1840. And then he joined the Knickerbockers in 1845. They formally organized in September of that year. And Doc joined about a month later. The New York Baseball Club did exist to the point that Doc's club played them the following May, excuse me, June of 1846, and got beaten soundly by a score of about 21 to 3. So there were clubs around, but I think after they play, after the Knickerbockers played against the New York Baseball Club in June of 1846, they sort of disappeared because there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence that they were very organized, certainly not to the point that they ever played the Knickerbockers again until about 1851 when they reconstituted as the Washington Club and then promptly changed their name to the Gothams. So the Knickerbockers really didn't have anybody to play against between 1846 and 1851. 1851 was their next recorded game against another club, which was the Gothams. I think that you've got to understand, if you really look at the history of baseball, it's a lot older than 1845. Man has this natural tendency to hit a bat with a ball. It doesn't mean to hit a ball with a bat, but there are manuscripts from the Middle Ages that right. show somebody hitting a ball with a bat. So, And there were variations in England. Even the pilgrims brought some variation over with them. It was just getting more organized in the in 1845 because it was mainly up until then a children's game. The children played it. But if, if you consider that all these men were living in the city and didn't have a lot of opportunities for good exercise, and this game of hitting a ball with a, a bat gave them that opportunity. And since they were grown-ups, they wanted something a little more organized than what the children would have played. So that's when the game started to mature. But the Knickerbockers did not do it single-handedly. And they've often been given, I think, a lot more credit than the club deserves for sort of inventing the game. They did not. But they furthered the game. I think, and that's where Doc comes in. It was about a little over 20 years ago, I met a man, Fred Ivor Campbell, who I'm sorry to say has now passed away, but he was certainly one of the finest baseball historians I've ever met. And we didn't have a long conversation, but I mentioned Doc Adams. And he said straight out to me, he said, well, you know, Doc saved baseball. And I said, what on earth do you mean? I thought thought it was kind of funny. And he said, well, between 1846 and 1851, it was Doc who made the players show up at the field for play and practice. He said, otherwise, nobody showed up. And if you read the Sporting News interview from 1896, Doc, Doc addresses that issue of going to the field for practice and only two other players would show up. And so for Doc, as president of the club, it was up to him to get people to show up. And that's what he did between 1846 and 1851, when they finally had the Gothams to play against. It, was, it fell to Doc just the way there wasn't any commercial enterprise in New York making bats and baseballs. So Doc had to make the balls by hand and he supervised the manufacture of the bats. He'd go around to various furniture turners 
and he'd choose the wood and he'd stand over them and watch them turn the wood so they'd get the right length and diameter that Doc wanted. He really loved the game. He made people show show up and he provided the equipment. That is absolutely fascinating to me that he made the balls and, and supervised the bats. And like you said, it wasn't he invented, it was evolving, but he certainly furthered that cause. And to go along with that, I know that he also was wrote down the first, I guess, rules, or they call laws of, of baseball. No. Still the the, uh, the the Knickerbockers, when they founded in 1845, had their own set of rules. I think there were 21 of them. Yes. But only something like 14 had anything to do with playing the game. A lot of them were rules of decorum and club dues and things like that. I know. Well, this was, this was gentlemen, but they wanted to be organized. So when you talk about the laws of baseball, that didn't happen until late 1856, when there were then about 15 clubs playing in New, between Brooklyn and New York City. And it was suggested by the Knickerbockers at their meeting in December of 1856, and probably Doc made the suggestion, that they call a convention for all the clubs in New York and Brooklyn for the following year to get together and settle all the different issues of how to play the game. Because every club, they'd all get together and everybody had different sets of rules. And because Doc was the president of the most senior club, it fell to him to write down the rules, which he did. And it was presented to the convention in 1857. Doc was was elected president of the convention as well. And he presented these rules to the club. They were discovered, and that's another story in and of itself. And they sold at auction, is Doc's handwritten laws of baseball, sold at auction in 2016 for 3.26 million. Wow. At the time, it was the third highest paid for any sports memorabilia. And it was the second highest paid for any baseball memorabilia. We keep getting beaten out by Babe Ruth shirts. How many shirts did that man have? There's another one just sold last year that that eclipsed the 3.26 million. I mean, that man must have put on a different shirt for every game he played. I've never seen anything like it. Well, I was outbid for those rules by... uh by about uh, 3.1 something million dollars, but... So was I, so was I, Lynn. <laughs> Believe me, at 11 o'clock that night, I'm still looking under the couch cushions. For <laughs> any change I can dig up. But, but one of the great things about that, Jeff and Lynn, is that uh, Margie has seen that, but it was like that funny lined paper we all had in grammar school, and here it's Doc's handwriting in pencil, I believe, right? Yes. Uh, and... Yep. It's, it's, it's on that cheap paper from grammar school, in lead pencil, handwritten, 3.2 million. Yeah, well, it was Doc's laws that made the find so valuable. Jeez. But there were two other documents that were sold with them that was the progression of the laws, including the final version. But it was Doc's that made it important because in there for the first time, was 90 feet between bases, and that was Doc's calculation. Right. And I will let others who understand all these rules better than I get into that end of it. That's not my department. But it was the first time that gambling was a rule, 
and you couldn't gamble if you had anything to do with the game in any way whatsoever. So I don't want to hear anything about a certain person who should be in the hall because it's a very old rule. It's a very old rule. It wasn't not only just 90 feet. It was nine innings and nine men per, yes. per yes. team. Yes, but, but what we're learning is the nine innings was pretty much what they were doing anyway, although there was a faction in the Knickerbockers that wanted seven innings and seven men. But they were overridden by Doc and another member, William Grinnell, who wanted nine men, nine innings. So really what a lot of the laws were, and I don't want to give Doc more credit than he deserves, but they were a combination of a lot of rules that they were already playing by. But the 90 feet, that is Doc. Creating the shortstop position is Doc. That's what he get credit for. Could you explain how he invented the shortstop position? Sure, will do. First of all, the, the ball that he played with, and I have an 1857 here, and this is a modern baseball. So you can see the difference here. Yes. The ball that he made was very light and was very spongy. They didn't last long. So you could throw it quite a, you could bat it quite a distance. You just couldn't throw it very far. So really the shortstop position was really a practical position to bring a player in between center field, between the outfield and the infield. It wasn't, he didn't stand as close to second base as he does now. It was a little further out to act as a relay position into the infield. And he first occupied that position in 1850, although it does show up in 1849. So pick what year you want, 1849, 1850. And he also says in the uh, Sporting News interview that he was the first to occupy it. And he did create it. Thank you, Derek Cheater. You, you, can, you can write me a letter anytime you want and thank me. Yeah, Derek <laughs> Ozzie Smith, you know, let's keep going. You know, how many are there? Exactly. How many are there who owe their plaque in the Hall of Fame to Doc Adams? Right. That's true. There have been some incredible center field, uh, center field, just shortstops, like you just said, Ozzie Smith and, and uh, Phil Rizzuto. Yeah, and, uh, and Derek Jeter and all that, on yeah. and on and on. That's, well, it's a pretty important position. It's an extremely yeah. important position. Shortstop is is. It's amazing that one person invented that position. That that's remarkable. You know, one of the things that from doing some research for this interview, it seems to me that Doc Adams it was very strong willed because the things that he believed in were made part of the game. The not uh, what what is it called? A pegging couldn't uh, throw at a runner. Plugging, plugging. So it's right. called plugging or soaking. Actually, and I'm sure Doc approved of it, but that had already been part of the Knickerbocker rules before Doc joined the club. That you can't do it. You cannot do it. There's a reason for it. Keep in mind, children really played baseball up until the oh late. 1700s, early 1800s. So you can hit a child with a ball. A child can throw a ball at another child and hit them and probably not do a lot of damage, but you can't have grown men doing that. Plus it made the game less manly. And they were all about fair play and making the game more manly. And he also didn't like the fact that you could catch it on a bounce. 
right? Absolutely, yep. And he tried to eliminate that rule. And the 1857 convention that I referred to a minute ago, they convened again in 1858. And they decided that they would then be called the National Association of Baseball Players. And Doc was chairman of the Rules Committee every year until he retired. And that was the one rule he really wanted to eliminate, which is called the bound game. And it did not pass until 1865 after Doc retired. But again, referring to the Sporting News interview, he says, and he talks about it in there, of how he wanted this rule to change and how he had said in his very last speech before the committee that it would change and fairly soon. He knew that the days were numbered. Part of it was, and Pine Tart probably understands this as much as anybody, it's very hard on the hands to catch a ball on the fly. You can risk a lot of damage. And a lot of these clubs that were part of this, this new association, there were a lot of young members, members who had not played the game a very long time and didn't have the practice of catching a ball on the fly. So it was sort of a matter uh, of physical self-preservation that there was so much resistance to passing the bound game. It was to, to reduce hand injuries because they weren't wearing any gloves. Gloves didn't exist. Gloves didn't come in until the mid 70s They were catching these things barehanded. Pine tar will tell you it's not easy to catch it on the fly. So that's why the bound rule was as long uh, was around as long as it was. There was a lot of resistance because they thought the fly game made the game more manly. So yes. You refer to the Sporting News interview, which I want to tell people if they want to read it, it's at uh, it's on your website, docadamsbaseball.org. Yes, which is a perfect opportunity to say that our petition is also at docadamsbaseball.org. We have an online petition to help us get Doc into the hall. It is absolutely secure. We do not farm names. We do not sell them. We will not contact you. You do it in complete privacy. We, we paid extra for that, boys and girls. <laughs> so please, I hope everyone will sign our petition if you agree that he should be in the Hall of Fame. There is a tab on the website that says our petition. Just go right there and yep. it's right there and just fill it out. And I can thank Roger Ratzenberger for our wonderful website. Yes. We would not have it if it weren't for Roger. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I, yes, I, Roger yeah. should be. <laughs> and yeah. so should Doc. Yeah, just really, I mean, he's one of the founding fathers of baseball. There's no baseball the way we know it without him. So anyways, Leonard, and I think that what, what had happened, it's, it's, Marjorie is always very cautious and it's, it's rough, but just before they found the laws of baseball that he had, had written, he had that last opportunity to be voted in and he missed by Marjorie was like two votes or one vote or yep. silly. Yep. Go ahead with that story and, and how they just missed. And if it was just a little bit later, I think he would have been in. Yeah. Well, actually I'm going to speed ahead about six weeks after the vote was taken in, in December of 2015. I got an email from somebody I trust who said, you're going to get an email from this person I know you won't recognize the name, but
but open it. You won't regret opening this email. And I said, okay. And 10 minutes later, there was that email. And it was from someone who said he had something interesting that he wanted to show me. And John Thorne knew all about it. And of course, that was good enough for me. Long story short, I went to an undisclosed location because I did sign a confidentiality agreement and it's still in effect. And I walked into a conference room and there were about 13 pieces of paper stretched out on the table, very old pieces of paper. And the first three pieces of paper, I looked at them and I went, that's Doc Adams's, that's Doc Adams. That's Doc's handwriting. It was the laws of baseball. It was the originals. It was before they went up for auction and this was the man who had bought them at a Sotheby's auction in 1998, along with some other papers that were his primary interest. And so I sat with him for about an hour. I got to hold the laws of baseball in my hand. Some of my tear stains might be on them because mm. I'm thinking, oh God, why didn't you do this a year ago? I mean, the vote was five weeks before this meeting. And he was very sweet. He apologized. He said, yes, I wish I had done this a couple of years ago because he knew about the vote. And so I did get to see them. And, and then, of course, then they sold in April, the following April, for $3.26 And so anyway, but I did see them on display at the Library of Congress two years ago. They were part of the Baseball Americana exhibit. They didn't show all of them. They showed a representation of the pages. The whole story of the laws of baseball is absolutely fascinating. Not just what Doc wrote, but the other two succeeding documents that were part of this package. And I would suggest, and we have it all up on our website, you can find out a lot about it there because it's a fascinating story. After everything that we know now about Doc Adams, there's no reason why maybe back then when the vote was taken, those two dissenting votes didn't know enough. But now with everything we know and, and the history that's been written, there is no reason why he should not be in the Hall of Fame. I couldn't agree with you more, Len. And the ballot, he was supposed to, I was hoping to get him on this year's early baseball era ballot. That's what I've been gearing up for all year. And then in August, it was announced because of COVID-19, they were postponing it a full year. So now I have to wait another year to see if I can make this happen. Because they changed, if I don't make it happen next year, the next vote, the next ballot that qualifies won't come out again for another 10 years. The Hall of Fame has changed the intervals for these early ballots. Mm. I understand why there just isn't the interest. You know, the, the, the Derek Jeters of this world are going to generate more interest than dear old Doc and some of the other 19th century players who deserve some recognition, but Doc first. Right. And, and, and I was thinking about this earlier when I wanted to speak to you. We live in a world where everything is so instant and we, you know, we want answers right away. But this is a history. This is where it started. And people really should know about this. And, you know, I, I'm with you. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I see that on your website the next vote well, next year for the 2022, I guess, induction ceremony. 
and yes. he really should be up there for that. About five years ago, I was in Gettysburg for the two-day vintage baseball festival that's held out there every year. And I got there a day early because I wanted to take the tour, the bus tour of Gettysburg because I'd never been before. And we got to Little Round Top and I'm sitting at the front of the bus so I can hear the guide well. And I had noticed some guy had gotten on in the back of the bus with a Boston cap. I'm going to forgive him for it, but <laughs> but uh, he had gotten on, on the bus and I'm sitting up in the front. So we get to Little Round Top and the, do and the guide is talking about Doubleday. And this goober in the back of the bus says, is this before or after he invented baseball? So, of course, Marjorie, who has no filters anymore, <laughs> shouted for the entire world to hear, Abner Doubleday had nothing to do with baseball. That myth was debunked in 1940. And everybody just looked at me. I thought the guide was going to throw me off the bus. <laughs> I really did. I really did. So I'm not shy. I'm not shy. No, I that's terrific. You know, it's it's amazing when when Pintar said to us that there was the, the you know the great granddaughter of one of the founding fathers of baseball. I right away was starting to do the math, and I you know the first thing you think, right, Pintar, you're shaking your head, right? The first thing you think is, but how old she must be? And, yes, I'm I'm 102. Don't I look great? <laughs> you look fantastic. Only backlighting from now on. <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's Well, it, I'll tell you how it happened. Yeah, please. I'll tell you how it happened. Doc did not marry until he was 47. And my great-grandmother, his wife, was 16 years his junior, and it was quite a love match. They had two children while they still lived in New York and neither of them lived their first child that survived was when they had moved to Ridgefield, Connecticut, where they had four children. And my grandfather was the youngest, born when Doc was 60. And he was born in 1874. Then my father was the youngest in his family. And I'm the youngest in our family. So that's why Doc is only my great-grandfather. I think it's fantastic. And it's great well, that way, too. But I like to say, like, baseball, everybody thinks baseball is so old. And yet, it is old. It's established. But yet, I mean, just saying that we've got the great-granddaughter of the, a founding member of baseball. Not great-great, not great-great-great-great-great, but just the great. It did work out that way. But still, it shows us that, you know, history is right, right, right to here with us. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you another story because – you talk about baseball history and Doc, it almost didn't happen. Among the family letters, I have one from his father to Doc, written in March of 1845. Keep in mind that Doc would join the Knickerbockers about seven months after this letter was written. And his father talks in there about, I'm glad you did not accept the position of going to Springfield. I think it's best you stay in New York with your <laughs> current course of action. I don't have the letters that preceded it, but obviously Doc had been offered some sort of job that would have required him to move to Springfield, Massachusetts. And he had already decided not to accept it. So we can't know, of course, 
But imagine what course baseball might have taken, if any, if Doc had taken that job in Springfield. And so I, I, and that to me is what makes history so interesting. It's the little things that history turns on. It's not the bigger gun that somebody has. It's the message that the general didn't get because the courier lost it mm. or didn't get there in time. It's the little things that, that history turns on. Like one time, I think as the story goes, Marjorie might remember this one. They uh, looking for rubber, Indian rubber, trying to make the baseballs. Of course, they you couldn't go to a store and get them. And I believe they tripped across, came across some German man that had rubber boots. They bought the boots, well, the baseballs. Well, according to the family, Doc would get the leftover galoshes from his friends and cut up the rubber into strips to make the baseballs. Nice. He, he was taught by a Scottish saddler who lived in Lower Manhattan Island how to wrap everything and stitch it the way you would for a horse whip. And so it was this Scottish saddler that showed Doc how to make the baseballs. And I have a recording of my grandfather talking about his childhood in, in Connecticut. And he talks about in the 1880s, Doc making baseballs for him and his friends and Doc playing baseball in the backyard with his sons and their friends. And even in his seventies, and I quote, impressing the boys with his batting, unquote. Nice. Now, the, the other thing I wanted to ask you, you found out really, I mean, you always knew you had this baseball history, but it's really later in life that you found out how important Doc Adams was to the game. Yes. So, and, and now you're called baseball royalty and, and, and everything. And, and believe me, we... Yes. I'm practicing the wave. <laughs> but there are other people who are descendants of, you know, famous players. And I'm just wondering, this might be a reach, but like, for instance, Babe Ruth's daughter, different, you know, there's different people. Have you had the opportunity to meet any of these people that may also be considered uh, baseball royalty? Oh, I've been in touch with one of Babe Ruth's granddaughters, Cindy. We've been in touch on Facebook. But no, I've not met her. That'd be fun. Yeah. I can ask her where, they, where all the other shirts are. Let, let's get them all out there and get them dead. I'm kidding. I'm sorry. That sounds like sour grapes, and I don't mean it to be. No, no, you were joking. That's fine. Know, it's just, that's I, every time it's Babe Ruth, it's a shirt. What happened to his pants or his hat? You know, it's always a shirt. Yeah, it's just a little Irish humor. I can't help it. It's the black Irish in me. You know what? That's so funny because it's like with uh, George Washington. It's like, boy, that guy slept in a lot of places, didn't he? Yeah, he slept around. Slept around. <laughs> so it's the same thing. That same thing. And that old silver dollar across the Potomac. <laughs> you know, guys, you gentlemen said something like you were kind of alluding to okay, baseball royalty, we say that, and, you know, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, I want to say that Cranky deserves a lot. Yes, you know, it's her great-grandfather that did all this. But she's more than just hung around for the ride. I mean, as somebody who just loved the game and has watched, I was there the first, I met her years ago, we were in Hartford, Connecticut, and I think this was kind of a lot of her being pulled into it at that time, and she's so developed with so much of, of, of the, the knowledge and then actually 
just promoted things in such a way. And today I know her, like when I was telling you, gentlemen, like you got to go cranky and she's great on the radio. And, and when you go to the games, I'm like, much better on the radio than I am on a zoom. Believe oh, me. you stop it. No. And we even have down in long Island. It's the doc Adams festival. She comes with a nice display and she's got even pictures of the buttons, the Knickerbocker buttons and certain things. And she gives a history lesson impromptu right there to anybody. To anybody who will listen. Well, so we my point listen. is she is, she is qualified. She and is we're, qualified. And we're on Long Island. When is this? Let's do it's it. A, it's an old Beth page. Okay. Yeah, Leonard wouldn't Beth. know where that is. And it's the first weekend in August. Well, okay. It's a we'll, lot of fun. We'll be there. Yeah, oh, we will definitely be there if there, if hopefully. It's Saturdays and Sundays. Nice. And I, last year, I only went for the Saturday. You know, all that traveling on the ferry and lugging all this stuff and then the hotel and all that. So, but I'll be there on the Saturday. That's for sure. Pintar, why, why do you call her cranky? I have to know. Everybody's got a nickname. Out yet, Len? What's wrong with you? You haven't figured it out yet? <laughs> Boy, I'm really selling you a bill of goods, guys. <laughs> she's, okay. she's behaving tonight. Yeah, I'm being very good. I'm being, you know, I'm being very good tonight. <laughs> but you know, the other part of that, it's kind of funny, is a crank in the early days of baseball was a fan. She's a tremendous baseball fan, so she's really a tremendous crank. And if you get her on the wrong day, she might be cranky. There you go. If, if the shoe fits, wear it. <laughs> but, you know, Cranky, I did ask both these gentlemen, and next year they've got to come to Long Island, I told them yep. in the previous, and Gettysburg, and we're going to rope them in. They're going to do some interviews, see some great stuff. But you know that when you're going to Long Island or anything, I will be the one taking care of your load, not doing it anymore. You you, you surprised me the last time. I'll help. Well, I'll or better That'd yet, be great. I'll help. You will love Old Beth Page. It is more fun. Of course, now that I know a lot of people, I get to see a lot of my buddies. You know, if I had ever thought for one second about getting Doc into the Hall of Fame 40 years ago, I should have because I'm surrounded by all these men. But now it's much too late for me. So <laughs> I, just had her I just wish I'd started this 40 years ago. I'm surrounded by men. I don't have any women friends anymore. Just, just men. <laughs> I love it. Are you kidding? <laughs> oh, to be, oh, to be 40 years younger. <laughs> and I a lot of guys are, look out for her. I, you definitely, are, your, your, your attitude and your, your personality are, are definitely 40 years younger. So, well, you're the best. So it's Audrey, bedtime. So we're, we're, we're cutting it awful close. Before we let you go, I, I, I want to know more about, Doc, he was not just a physician, a ball player, but he was also a bank president. Yes, they retired to Ridgefield, Connecticut in 1865. He became an absolute pillar of his community. He gave up medicine, and I have a feeling he never, his heart was never really in the medicine. I think that was his father's influence. His father's been a doctor. And I don't think he had much choice. His father told him to be a doctor, so he became a doctor. In any case, they moved to Ridgefield in 1865. He became very active in the founding of the Ridgefield Library. He was the first treasurer. And when they were gathering all the books, they stored them in Doc's attic. He was on 
a member of the Land Improvement Association. And then in 18, I think 1875, he was elected the first president of the Ridgefield Savings Bank. And he served as president of the bank for 15 of the next 18 years. The bank still exists as the Fairfield County Bank now. And his photograph still hangs in the main office of the, of the Fairfield County Bank. And then he retired for, for real this time to New Haven, Connecticut in 1888. They moved the whole family to New Haven. It's because my grandfather and his older brother were at Yale and it was very expensive for the family to have two sons at Yale. So it was cheaper to move the whole family to New Haven so the boys could live at home. Plus, Doc could keep an eye on his two sons to make sure they were studying hard enough. And while we're on the subject of Yale, in 1888, Doc was asked to write a little autobiography for a Yale alumni bulletin. He didn't mention baseball, but I, if I leave you with any quote at all to really know what Doc was all about, there's one line in there where he says, my marriage was the crowning achievement of my life. Wow. So anyway, that, that sort of tells you what you really need to know about the man. Well, I want to ask you one more question. I don't know if you've been asked this before, but if Doc was to be with us today, somehow he saw baseball today, what do you think he would think of the game that he helped develop, that he helped invent, that he helped create? I think the only thing that would disappoint him would be all the money. I think that would disappoint him. I think he would love that the game is still going and changing and growing as it needs to. But I think he would be disappointed that there is so much money involved. That's really the, and and the drugs, I don't think he'd, obviously he wouldn't approve of the drugs, the steroids or whatever it is they take. And the gambling. I think there are some players he would love to meet. Of course, I'd love to have them meet him. You know, Derek Jeter, Ozzie Smith, Phil Rizzuto, even Babe Ruth in his shirts. I hope that answers your question. It does. It does. And, you know, I sometimes wonder what he would think about what I'm doing. He never talked about baseball. We have not one thing in the family that Doc ever wrote about his time in baseball. Mm. I have an essay my grandfather wrote in 1839 talking about his father, but Doc didn't write anything. So I kind of wonder how Doc would feel about my quest for the Hall of Fame. I, I don't know if it would interest him. Mm. I don't even I, think he, I, he would approve. that He was a Congregationalist. And I don't think he would have approved. He wasn't boastful. Otherwise, everybody would know about Doc Adams and not Abner Doubleday. Well, we think everybody should know about Doc Adams. And before we let you go, talk about, you know, you want to talk about not just your website, but I think you also have a Facebook page if people wanted to get in touch. Yes, Doc Adams has a Facebook page. You can email me through the website. And Roger reviews them and throws out the silly ones or the nasty ones and passes others on to me. So Doc has a Facebook page. And then, of course, our website, docadamsbaseball.org. 
and please sign our petition. And you know, Jeff and Len and Pintar, I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk about one of my family, fav- one of my favorite family members. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. And well, we've enjoyed having you. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, yeah. thank you, know, you gentlemen. Jeff. What 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 Cranky was saying there, I, I think there was such a need. We were talking about Doc Adams and why wasn't he really known when he did so much? And you start to look at the plaque at the the Hall of Fame and. He was a proper Victorian gentleman, and she just laid that out a lot. And he was not boastful. Uh, you look at what he did for giving back to the community. And then at the end, when he, when he wrote down what was really important to him, it wasn't baseball, it was his wife. It was his family. It was his community. You could get just a chill down your spine when you start to think about who this guy really was. Why don't we know him? Because he knew what was really important. But what Cranky's doing, yeah, maybe he would have thought, oh, this is silly. What, what do we need the fame for? Um, because he was that kind of person, but she's doing something that's needed because documented and she's, you know, it's, I think that uh, he would have maybe, you know, in the grand scheme of things understood the position of the sport, trying to get it, get it right. Cause he did seem to be somebody who did things right. So it kind of puts it all in, in perspective. What she's done is, is really needful for his oh, yeah. and for her. Doc was just a humble guy that really did some tremendous thing. Here, here's this picture up in a bank. They're thinking, here, there's the guy that kind of started it. No, that's the guy that started baseball. And hey, here's the guy that, you know, there was, there was a lot of other little things in his life. It's kind of amazing. Cranky brings a lot of that to light. It's fantastic. I've been tremendously privileged to get to know her. But to play the game, first of all, then I met this woman. You know, Who's that? Oh, that's the great-granddaughter of this guy. And that was years ago, back about 2007, and from that point on, you know, I have learned so much from her. And my experience, my life has been so enriched by the fun part of this game, but also all of this history. It's been priceless. And I do play modern baseball. Modern baseball today in a men's senior league in Connecticut, it just doesn't have the richness, doesn't hold a candle to the old, uh, the old sport that Doc developed. Well, thank you, Pintar. That's very sweet. And thank you for telling Jeff and Lynn about me. And Doc, I appreciate that very much. We thank you. You know, the Baseball Hall of Fame is, it, yes, it has uh, the, great, the great players in it, but it's a museum filled with history. And it would it, to not have part of the history of the game, whether he would have wanted to be recognized because he was humble, it doesn't matter. It, he's part of the history. And to not have him in there as part of the history is not right. So whether, you know, that's, that's the thing. He is, there's no baseball or the way we know baseball without Doc Adams. Bottom oh, line, done. Marjorie, you are fantastic. Oh, thank, thank you. Pine Tar, thank you so much for bringing her on. Oh, thank you, Len. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Pine Tar. Wow. You listen to that and knowing... It's uh, Pintar. You okay? I am. I'm. I'm okay. Good. Okay. I really. She. What? You, Jeff. You said it. You. You really said it. The passion. Well, actually, I said Jeff. I'm referring. You're Jeff. You're Pintar. That's how we differentiate. She really had a passion for this, and and even even with the with the rules, you know, she didn't own them. You know, they were they went for the over three million dollars. She didn't own them, but just seeing them, it really meant so much to her. 
I'm so glad that we had this opportunity to, to interview her. I always call, you know, if it's, if an interview starts off an interview and then you, you feel really good talking to each other. And I call that a conversation. We had a conversation with Marjorie Adams Cranky. So really just a, a really wonderful. I really hope that, uh, you know, Doc Adams gets in the Hall of Fame. Pintar, I want to ask you one question before uh, you comment on, on the interview. You play 1860s rules baseball. What exactly? 1860s? Well, the truth is I play them all and okay. play by different rules. We try to exemplify what it is, but primarily we play by the rules of 1864 many times. It's a little bit more inclusive. And then in 1865, it turns into what is called the fly game. And Doc was a big proponent of that, but we also play by the 1870s, 1880s. And I, okay. I that without getting too tedious. Yes, we okay. all the, vir- it was changing virtually year to year mm-hmm. in early days. And that's the excitement. We play virtually a different set of rules depending on the situation. I mean, I don't even want to, you know, I could say, oh, Pintar, you know, what, what would you say if Marjorie, you know, if you could say one last thing that uh, we're not, we're not Barbara Walters. We're not trying to bring uh, a tear to anyone's eyes, but the floor is yours. You can say anything you want. We're going to, we're going to wrap up this memorial, but please say anything you'd like. Well, the one thing is a little bit on that. If I could say the last thing to, to that and in that spirit, uh, I wasn't thinking about that, but I would just say, cranky, don't worry. We've got this. We've got this because there's a lot of people that just are on her side, doc side, the side of baseball, proper presentation of the sport and uh, why I say that because I'm leading into something we got this Marjorie cranky we've got this you, you've done a great work and we're with you and and I could say that for so many of the amazing people all over this country and so many people really did connect to her and the people that love this game are really supportive she did a great job now with that said uh, people say geez I hope doc gets in I hope doc gets in and it was such an oversight. And, uh, you know, I won't say too much, but I did hear that one person who was a voting member did a Wikipedia research, um, really a Wikipedia research. Um, don't know what his vote went, but, you know, hey, if they're doing a Wikipedia research, he wasn't getting properly, you know, um, vetted. But three months later, the laws of baseball came out. It's got to be a slam dunk coming forward. And here's why, guys, because. Why so we got this, Marjorie? Because you cannot talk about baseball from the beginning to now without talking about Doc Adams. He's more than important. He's foundational. He's more than important. He's foundational. You can't talk about baseball without talking about Doc Adams in depth. That's what's really amazing. And that says it all. You know, and and guys, like you said, to to wrap this up, I'm kind of showing uh, you guys this book. It's a Doc Adams book. And uh, uh, I guess Cranky had put a lot of these together to get them to certain people as she was spreading the word. And it says a founding father of baseball. She was very careful to never over emphasize anything. Uh, her whole family is <laughs> always been very um uh, you know, uh, almost uh, the, the proper nature of the Victorian era. They weren't going to brag or boast. And she says it's hard for the family to even talk about things. 
but even sometimes I would say something, you know, Jeff, that's, you know, you, you can't say that. We don't know that for sure. And she represented it properly, fully to everything she knew without exaggeration. Doc was a founding member of baseball, but I think I could properly say and fully say that he was the most influential man to help develop baseball. And that's my stand. She's uh, greatly missed, but what a, what, a, what a gift she was to the game, to the people that knew her. We had a tremendous time, left an impact, and she was always fun. And there's pictures of so many of us, friends, uh, uh, many of the guys, and they all have great fond memories, and we could, we could tell stories. We could tell stories. And uh, I believe one day when Doc gets uh, voted in, we should have a reunion, kind of a roundtable meeting with some of her influential friends. And we could share some great uh, Marjorie stories and uh, give you the cranky side. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Pintar, thank you for joining us. Everybody, please go out to docadamsbaseball.org. Check this out. Look at Marjorie's uh, work. And I know uh, Roger Ratzenberger was also instrumental on, on this website, but this is about Marjorie today. And please check it out. And we will see you next time on the next edition of Baseball and BBQ.